Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. I just keep telling yourself that if you're thinking to yourself, I thought it was Thursday on Tuesday because that's where I was. I thought it was Thursday on Tuesday, but hey, hey, we're now on this side of hump day and it's officially Thursday. So it is Thursday, the 29th of August. Uh, and we have a lot of ground to cover globally this morning. We're going to spend uh, a fair amount of our time discussing things happening right here in uh, the United States of America. I've got David Kenneman lined up for a conversation about his new book, Faith for Exiles. We're going to talk about the way that families with children who have special needs um, can really use Jerry, uh, Gary Chapman's five love languages to not only speak into the life of their children, but to live really abundantly in that. So there's a there's a new book related to that I want to share with you this morning. Um, we're going to talk about discernment. Uh, as Christians, as we read things. But first up this morning, I'm going to talk with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. He and I are going to cover a number of headlines. Before we get there, let me just um, invite you to be praying for some things happening uh, around the world. Uh, Obviously, the headlines related to Hurricane Dorian, we're thanking God that Puerto Rico was spared, uh, but we're now you know, praying in earnest during this state of emergency for the, uh, for our Southern neighbors in Florida. Um, Again, anticipating the storm's path uh, is still part of uh, more magic than science. And so um, we know this. The storm is likely to arrive this weekend. It's likely to arrive as a Category 3. It's it's strengthening as it passes over warm water. And so we want to uh, simply ask for God's mercy in the midst of all of that and for people to be prepared and to, you know, evacuate if they are able to do so in a timely manner and uh, be praying in advance for all of those who respond to storms, who who stay where others are told to leave, um, in order that you know help can be there when the storm passes. So all of that uh, would be among my prayers this morning. Having grown up in Florida uh, and having lived for a period of my life on in coastal South Carolina, you know I just recognize the what this feels like, what it feels like for people to anticipate these kinds of things. I um, want to be praying today also for the people of Hong Kong in anticipation of. Um, protests over the weekend. The Hong Kong police have now banned those mass protests uh, planned for this weekend. It will be interesting to see what demonstrators, how demonstrators respond to that. You will remember we've seen uh, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong that uh, include nearly two million people on some weekends. And so this would be the 13th weekend in a row uh, that the protests are planned and the police have banned those mass gatherings. And so we'll see, uh, uh, you know, we've been talking about this. I think that there is a open conflict probably in the not too distant future. Um, on Monday, I'm going to ask uh, David Aikman about this rising tension in the UK between the, U- the UK's parliament uh, and their new prime minister, Boris Johnson. And now the queen, the queen is now involved. You know, 
Uh, we thought she was just a, uh, a figurehead. No, in fact, she has a lot of political power. And in fact, she's wielding it. All right. Next up, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. He and I are going to talk about President Bush's push for the border, border wall, which is um, threatening to seize private property along the U.S. southern border through what's called eminent domain. We're going to talk about what that is and whether or not this is appropriate use of government power. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Okay, uh, before I bring Ben Johnson on, I have to clean up a mess that I made uh, already this morning. Um, next Monday is Labor Day, and so uh, Paul tells me, no, no, we're not... <laughs> We're not going to be talking to Dr. Aikman until Tuesday. So next week, although this week, Tuesday was the new Thursday, next week, Tuesday is going to be the new Monday. So there you go. Do you know what? Just be here every day and we will be bringing the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news. Uh, and we love to be with you in doing that. Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Welcome back, my friend. I think it's Thursday. It's Thursday and I'm excited to be back speaking with you. Yeah, we love to talk with you. Okay, so let's talk about... Um, this news that the Washington Post and now others have reported as well, that uh, that the president of the United States is pushing to complete his border wall through the taking of land from uh, U.S. property owners, private property owners, through what's called eminent domain. So I would love for you to remind us what eminent domain is, uh, where the idea comes from, and whether or not you think this is, um, you know, a just use of uh, of this constitutional authority? I'm going to use that language. All right, go ahead. Yeah, go. Con- constitutional authority is a, is a good term for eminent domain. Eminent domain says that if the government has a use for a land, then the government has the right to take that land, even if the person who owns it doesn't want to sell it. Uh, in that case, the government has to provide what, uh, what's called just compensation, which is that it, the government makes a valuation of how much the land is worth and pays the owner. And at that point, the government owns the land, whether the person wanted to sell it or not. The person has to sell because of the government. Uh, I, I don't have any trouble with the government doing this. It's an established constitutional principle. The issue, uh, you, you can debate about the wisdom of particular uses of eminent domain, and you can certainly quibble with whether the uh, owner is getting actual value. In many cases, the government way undervalues what they're purchasing, uh, and as a result of that, people who own homes are not able to replace the homes that have been taken. That's my problem with eminent domain is is the overextension of uh, places where the government is seizing land and the fact that they don't pay people uh, what is actually involved. If you uh, remember the scripture, of course, Ahab had something uh, sort of a, a similar situation in, in his background. I always think of that when eminent domain is abused. The real problem with eminent domain is when it's when it's used and given to private business uh, in the 2005 Supreme Court decision, Kelo versus New London, where the Supreme Court ruled that not only could the government do that, but uh, then they could say that uh, if this gov- if this property could be used for more productive tax purposes, they could force you to sell to another private owner. Uh, that's that's an extreme abuse of eminent domain. But uh, using it for a government purpose, I don't have any problem with. So I suspect because uh, he has spent much of his career as a developer, that this is one of the places where um, Donald Trump uh, understands the power of eminent domain and he understands the decision of the Supreme Court related to this. Because 
I, I do think that we have seen a rise in the use of eminent domain for the taking of private property for what I will call development purposes, private development. And so, um, you know, I think it might it was maybe a surprise to people that the president was so familiar with this concept and knew that it was a tool available to him because he does not sometimes on other occasions appear to be a, a really astute student of the Constitution. And yet in this case, he, he's, he absolutely knows what the implicit power of the Fifth Amendment is in terms of this particular clause. Well, he certainly does. And it, the big the big issue here is just the fact that the federal government's such a massive landowner. It, it owns about 28 percent of the entire United States in terms of really? surface area. 640 million acres of land is, is how much uh, the U.S. government owns. So so if you look at and by the way, a ballotpedia has a, a great function. You can see how much the federal government owns in each state. When you get places uh, west of, of uh, the Rockies, for example, uh, uh, the government is a massive landowner, owns most of, of several states. So uh, the, the fact that the government is such a massive landowner it just calls into question, do we really need all of this land? What are they doing with it? Uh, couldn't that be better put to use in private hands? Well, wow, that's fascinating. Okay, and then I will say there's probably people that are also just surprised that the U.S. government doesn't already own the land on the border. Like, that's probably already a surprise to some people. Like, they're probably thinking, okay, this just seems like simple. Like, we should own it, and there should be a wall, and like, there, a border should be a border. Like, I think there's probably some folks listening who are saying, this, this seems like the right thing to do at this time in history. Well, it, it matter of fact, some of them are so committed. There, there's actually a private group that has begun building its own wall on the border, buying up land and building a wall right at the U.S. Okay, border. Fascinating. So, yeah, yeah. That's so, so there are there there are, there are groups that are, are trying to uh, force the federal government's hand. Uh, right now, you know, uh, Donald Trump is absolutely committed to try and keep this campaign promise. He knows that's what got him elected. That was the main thing that you associate with him. And if he can't show real progress on the border wall, it's going to be tough times in uh, 14 months from now. So so he's doing his very best to uh, to follow through with this. Eminent domain is something that he's going to be using there. I don't have any problem, again, on the border, no problem. When it comes to other parts of the country, there's a real abuse that we need to address. Okay, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked with you about this teen environmental uh, activist from Sweden. Um, I am trying to learn how to accurately say her name. Her first name is Greta. You say her last name. Her last name's Thunberg. It, lo- it looks like uh, it's it's T H U N B E R G, but uh, since she's Swedish, Thunberg. There you go. So we're going to talk about uh, Greta Thunberg. She has now arrived in New York after sailing across the Atlantic. Uh, and when we come back, Ben's going to remind us who she is, what she's up to, why it matters to us, and then we're going to talk about a Department of Labor uh, proposed rule to protect contractors in relationship to religious liberty. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Ben Johnson, also known as the Rights Writer, blogs at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Right now he's got a post up entitled The Reason America's Poor Are Richer Than Most Europeans. It's an excellent read. Um, Nothing in there will surprise you if you hear Ben here week to week uh, talking with us about, well, socialism a lot. We talk about that a fair fair amount. And this conversation that we're going to have about teen environmental activist Greta Thunberg, um, Ben and I talked about her a couple of weeks ago. I thought we would bring this back up because, Ben, she's now arrived. She is here. She is in New York City, uh, went across the ocean in uh, what was supposed to be a, um, uh, a zero-carbon emission boat. However, as it turns out, she would have actually had a lower-carbon 
footprint if she had just flown. Uh, the the director who uh, she'd come across on a boat called the Malaysia Two. And if you, by the way, if you look at her Instagram or her Twitter feed, it's kind of heartrending at places. She's a 16 year old who's taking an entire year off of uh, off of school in order to promote uh, climate change around the world. She's going to be addressing the UN. And she shows how when she's on the boat, you see sometimes these massive waves crashing onto her. It, it, it's a little little uh, disturbing to, to see this. But it, as it turns out, uh, on that uh, that uh, boat that she has come across, which is largely made of plastic, it, it doesn't have a zero uh, carbon footprint. But the team found out that uh, since they took it out at such a uh, an unexpected rate and, and they had to do it so quickly – now they have to fly two people over in order to get the boat back. <laughs> so, so it actually has a higher carbon footprint than if she had just taken a plane by herself. Mm. Um, okay, so ta- remind us who, who she is, what she's saying, and um, you know why what she just did is basically a stunt. Yeah, uh, Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old girl from Sweden uh, who uh, became obsessed with climate change uh, when she was about 11 years old. She, she had extreme signs of depression, lost 20 pounds when she was 11 years old, so it's pretty severe, uh, would not speak to other people. And eventually she, she decided she was going to start a climate change crusade. If you've seen students who were striking, not going to class on Fridays because of climate change, she's the one who began it all. And it's become a global phenomenon. Now she's going to address the UN on a climate change summit. Then she's going down to Chile for a, a global climate change uh, uh, presentation there as well. So uh, she's, she's doing her very best to say we need zero carbon emissions, period, on the planet. Uh, if we were to do that, as we said uh, the last time we talked about it, the average Californian would pay $22,000 a month for their utility bill. So it, it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not possible. Uh, what she was talking about is simply scientifically impossible. God may ask the difficult, but he never asked the impossible of us. So you have um, uh, at blog.acton.org in the archives um, something folks can go and and read related to this. So again, Ben Johnson at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, um, definitely something we want to all be paying attention to. Uh, talk with me about this Department of Labor proposed rule to protect contractors um, who have religious objections to, um, well, to certain well behaviors of employees. Maybe I'll describe it that way. Well, uh, behaviors and beliefs. What uh, what the Department of Labor said on August 14th, they promoted, uh, they issued a new regulation, just clarifying a previous executive order. They and it says, and this is a quote: "Religious exemption covers not just churches, but employers that are organized for a religious purpose, who hold themselves out to the public as carrying out a religious purpose, and engage in the exercise of religion consistent with uh, a, a religious purpose." So all, all that uh, boils down to this. If you are an employer and you contract, you are a contractor with the federal government, the federal government can't discriminate against you or withhold funds because you have a particular religious outlook and you tend to employ people who have your religious outlook and, and uh, you require that their behavior is consistent with your Christian views. So, for example, a lot of the uh, organizations, the Council of Victims of Human Trafficking, will say, even though they're a private organization, they imply private uh, counselors and therapists, they will say, we, we are doing this as a ministry to heal people in the name of Christ. But uh, under previous, uh, uh, let's say, uh, there was a certain amount of vagueness about uh, federal regulations, the ACLU, for example, would like to have interpreted those regulations to say you have to employ someone who is an atheist, and you can't require that person to mention the name of Christ or the Bible or prayer uh, in, in their counseling as a potential tool to help other people. 
Uh, you, you, there are various other uh, regulations and behaviors that uh, certain people would, would like to force people to uh, uh, hire uh, regardless of what that particular employer says. And this is both for nonprofit but also for-profit employers who say, if the federal government asks them, that they are in fact a uh, religious and Christian institution. So the federal government can no longer discriminate against you if you happen to hold traditional values. All right, so that seems really important and and crystal clear. Okay, so I know we don't have um, we don't have time really to talk about what is going on in Great Britain, and I'm going to talk with David Aikman at length about it last or next week. But um, but you posted an explainer. What does it mean to prorogue? Am I saying that right? Parliament. That's right. And so so we want to direct people to that. What you want to give us the the two minute down and dirty on what does it mean to prorogue Parliament? Yeah, this is a constitutional tool that they only have in the UK. We don't have it here. The government uh, basically at any time can prorogue parliament, which is to say that they will suspend parliament. Uh, you don't reset the government, but it resets the legislative agenda. So any bill that is pending, uh, you can either vote to carry it over. Otherwise, the entire legislative agenda is wiped clean and everyone is in recess for a couple of days. Uh, the reason this is important is because Boris Johnson is trying his best to push Brexit through Parliament, which has a pro-Remain majority, is trying to keep him uh, from exiting the uh, EU if he doesn't have a deal by October 31st. And Boris Johnson just deprived them of 23 days to enact their agenda uh, while he is going to uh, push forward with uh, a Brexit. He's, he's looking for a deal, but um, he's said many times he's going to leave with or without a deal. So this was uh, sort of a master parliamentary stroke on his part. Uh, to push uh, this through. It's incredibly important because it looks as though Parliament is really trying to thwart and kick the can down the road to keep uh, the UK in the EU as long as humanly possible without any legislation. 17.4 million people voted to leave. It's time to leave. So, okay, so uh, the Prime Minister has worked out a deal with the Queen to request an end to the current parliamentary session. Um, and that will happen sometime in September, and then they won't commence again until October the 14th, and that will be kicked off with a Queen's speech. Is a Queen's speech what it sounds like, a speech by the Queen? It's exactly that, but it's written by the uh-huh. government, so so she delivers oh. it, but she doesn't write it. Oh, interesting, yeah. interesting. Okay, so I think that then we should have, like, pierogi season during the, the prorogue. <laughs> so I'm going to declare pierogi season from, like, mid-September to mid-October. Can I do that? Do you think I have? I don't know. That'd be kind of Rogies, Latkes will be there. Yes, something. All right. Hey, Ben Johnson, thank you so much. You guys can follow him. He's at The Rights Writer. He's also at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. We'll be right back. So from time to time, we like to talk to David Kenneman from the Barna Group about not only recent research, but then how that research is distilled out so those of us who are in the church can use it to advance the kingdom. And so uh, David's latest book is written with Mark Matlock. It's Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. All those words are important. The idea that we uh, live in Babylon now, the idea that our Babylon is digital, the idea that we have new generations emerging who uh, need to be not only recipients, but people who walk out the faith. Well, how are they going to do that? Faith for Exiles is up next with David Kenneman. What if every day were Thanksgiving? Okay, I don't mean you should eat turkey, mashed potatoes, and gravy every day. But what if giving thanks is a daily ritual for you? Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. 
I'm guessing you're grateful for the many blessings in your life. But there is something about the day of Thanksgiving. There's a feeling of abundance. You're surrounded by people you love and who love you, too. (laughs) The feeling of enough is almost palpable. So what if you made an effort to carry that feeling of gratitude into the rest of the year? One idea? Make a list of three things you are thankful for every day. It can be as simple as, I'm grateful for the sun rising today. And try to find something to be grateful for, even in difficult times. Being grateful can help you be more content, and it can help you live a generous life once you realize how much you have to share with others. And that's something, well, to be grateful for. Joining me today, David Kenneman, president of Barna Group, leading research and communications company, works with churches, nonprofits, and businesses. Wow, we um, we know Barna well. We talk frequently about their research. I'm thrilled to have David here because David um, helps us understand how these are not just data points. This is not just statistics. These are real people about whom we are really concerned as uh, as disciples of Jesus Christ in this generation. So, David, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, you, Carmen. Always so great to talk to you. Well, I love talking with you because um, I think that as soon as we say, hey, we're going to talk about some data, we're going to talk about some research, people, you know, they they glaze over. That's not what we're talking about. Tell us what we're talking about when we are turning our attention to faith for exiles. Well, we're certainly talking about the faith of the next generation. And when I talk about next generation, I'm thinking about the millennial generation and also Gen Z. Uh, it's an area of focus for our company and for me personally uh, for the last few years. We've really tried to understand people's faith journeys And this new project called Faith for Exiles, we've actually interviewed um, more than 1,500 18 to um, 29-year-olds, Gen Z and millennials, who have grown up in the church. And we try to understand what made them either stay with their faith or lose their faith. And in particular, we're looking at that top 10%, what we call resilient disciples. A lot of our work in the last decade has focused on what's going wrong, why people are losing their faith, trying to stop the hemorrhaging of young people walking away from the church or walking away from their faith. And in this case, what we're learning is what's working. And we interviewed the people that stayed and who are the most committed to faith and to Scripture and to the church. And I think we learned some really, really interesting things that will be really helpful to people. So it's far more than just a lot of data. It's a about the things we can do to make a difference uh, for the faith trajectory of this uh, this next generation. Well, and when you and I talk about next generation, we're talking about people who live in our own homes, right? I mean, we're we are talking about people we love, about whom we are concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Our, our own kids, our own grandkids, friends of friends, people that we go to church with. Uh, it's a very it's very personal to me because I think you know I, I sort of see my own family, my own kids, my own friends of friends in the you know in the church community, and you know wondering what we can do to make a difference. So when we think about these next generations, when we think about millennials, when we think about um, Gen Z, um, they are growing up in what you describe as a digital Babylon. Explain, explain to us what that means. Well, we live in a screen age, so it's no secret. You don't need a researcher to tell you that we live in the era of smartphones and that social media, instant access to entertainment uh, YouTube, other sorts of platforms are changing the way people uh, interact, the way they think, their access to information, um, even just using something like an example of pornography. You know, pornography isn't new in human history, but the access, the levels of access 
uh, is new. Um, even on a positive note, the things that we can now we can listen to podcasts and hear worship music and you know church you know, church related content from all over the world from some of the, the leading preachers and communicators and Bible teachers. Um, and and so it's a it's a it's a wild wild west. And so digital Babylon it's sort of a fun term for me to, to talk about what I think is the current context. And just like Daniel in in scripture had to learn how to be faithful in a new context, you know, going from a relatively simple life uh, to a more complicated life in in Babylon. Uh, I've used the phrase digital Babylon because this generation is having to grow up fast. They're having to experience the world and questions about the world at a speed and at a pace that no generation has had to before. And that puts new pressure um, and also opens up new opportunities for the church. So when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about disciple making, um, I think that in the past we have, um, we've made some assumptions about how disciples are made that was, you know, hey, if we design a good program, if we, you know, if we design a good system um, all of the inputs are kind of the same because everybody is kind of the same and has all of the kinds of the same experiences. And if we throw them all into the end of this, that we can pump them out. This this process will pump out mature disciples at the other end. You actually just out, you you throw a monkey wrench into that whole idea and and way of thinking in terms of a system. You're talking about handcrafted, faithful, resilient disciples, um, and and the church learning to do that one life at a time. What does that look like? Well, I mean, I think thank you, thank you for you know asking it that way. I mean, we've put a lot of time and energy, and after you know twenty five years of being here at this company, researching you know more than a million people, looking at their faith journeys, it's a, it's one of the most clear as day conclusions that we could draw, which is that you can't mass produce disciples. You know, you you can't just as you're saying sort of put people on a conveyor belt and expose them to a bunch of different you know you know gamma ray scripture and different, you know, like, like you can't just expect the same exposures to the same thing to re- result in people's lives being transformed in some uh, predictable way. And so the handcrafted point is, it, it, you know, the church is a- able and should know, um, for example, just people's callings and what they're good at and how they're wired. And this gets to one of the, the themes of the work is that, that vocational discipleship is one of the is one of the ways in which these resilient disciples, that 10%, um, are very different from their peers. And that is that they're, they, they actually understand that their work, their, their calling matters to God. And, and the church knows something about them in that manner, not just you know, their Sunday profile, but their Monday to Friday profile. And, and, and that's a, an example. So we, so we have interviewed lots and lots of young people who are interested in computer programming or entertainment or writing or design um, business, entrepreneurship, and and many of those young people have walked away from their faith, or or even walked away from the church, because the church seems to be so silent on those issues that matter so uh, deeply to those young people. And and everyone, of course, has some sort of calling in the world to to, to do good work. Um, so that's a good example of how we can handcraft is to focus in on each person's identity, their calling, their passions, their relational issues and challenges. And we're not just trying to put, you know, cram people into a church building uh, for Sunday morning worship events. We're trying to help really grow them in the way of Jesus. And that's a handcrafted approach. So when David and uh, Kenneman and I return from this break, we're actually going to talk about the five practices that they have identified in Faith for Exiles that distinguish or most distinguish 
this this faithful group of young adults, ages 18 to 29, from their generational peers. So the practices are experiencing intimacy with Jesus, developing the muscles of cultural discernment, forging meaningful intergenerational relationships, training for vocational discipleship, and embracing a countercultural mission to love and serve others. When, uh, when we come back, David and I are going to unpack those, uh, those five practices. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with David Kenneman from the Barna Group about Faith for Exiles. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with David Kenneman. Uh, he has co-authored a new book with Mark Matlock. The book is Faith for Exiles, and we are exploring these five practices that most distinguish the faithful 10% of young adults ages 18 to 29 from their generational peers. And we're doing this so that each of us can not only understand emerging generations, but so that we can understand how we uh, can engage and disciple them that in ways that are just going to uniquely fit who they are in the world in which they live. So, David, um, walk us through these. Let's just start with number one. Um, how do we form a resilient identity uh, by experiencing intimacy with Jesus? Well, as you as you rattle through those um, those five practices right before the break, you know, the, the, these in some ways one of the one of the cautions I have for listeners and, and through the research. Um, some, some of them sound like, well, of course, we should have uh, you know intimacy with Jesus, but you'd be surprised how often that doesn't actually happen with people who are regularly attending church, and how often young people walk away from the church because they feel that God was silent in their lives, and so that gets to you know leaning. Like first, we have to really be careful not to say, well, great, we got that. Yeah, we, I, I see. Of course, we do that. Um, you'd be surprised that the that the first practice or you know, the way we go about any of these practices is really to disabuse ourselves, to, 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 to remind ourselves that these are not easy things to do. Jesus even uses the parable of, of the sower to tell us that, you know, certain seed as a metaphor for gospel truths don't actually sink into the soil or when they do, they're choked out by the weeds of life. And so intimacy with Jesus, um, the simplest way to think about it is each, each of these chapters, we give lots of different examples from the research of, of the dimensionality of the, of the very specific things we can do in our families and in our in our homes uh, to, to bring these things about. But intimacy with Jesus is really a, a true and deep sense that Jesus speaks to us. That's probably the clearest way I could say it, is that we found this just um, uh, sort of unimpeachable evidence that young people who um, believe that Jesus really speaks to them and through them are much more resilient in their faith. They, they, they literally believe there's a God who is, who is talking uh, and that he has wisdom to reveal, that he, that he loves and cares. They, they, they believe that, that they have, you know, there's a, rele- a relevance to their faith in the world um, through that voice of, voice, voice of God. And so that's a, the, the first thing to, to think about is how, how are we um, cultivating practices that allow us to hear and experience God's voice in our lives? So the very next point, and I will I will stick a personality into this conversation right here, because having just described intimacy with Jesus in the way that you did, I then say we have a person, you know, who is running for the Democratic primaries right now, who who believes you can actually have open conversations with God. All right. So we also need to be culturally discerning. And so developing muscles of cultural discernment is actually Number two, in this very complex and anxious age. 
And so it's not just about believing that God speaks to me. It's about understanding who God is and that God speaks in a very specific way. Exactly. So that's the second major point. And we have, again, a lot of evidence in the research that shows the different ways in which cultural discernment works out. But again, going back to that example we used before the break of Daniel, um, if this is faith for exiles, and these young people are living in a world that's more complicated, that's more accelerated, there's all sorts of social research that shows that their anxiety levels are through the roof. Uh, We have to give them tools to make decisions, to see right from wrong, to understand what's right, what's wrong, what's missing, what's confused, to answer, you know, what what are the messages I'm receiving when I'm watching, um, you know, media today, since we live in the screen age, there's just a sheer volume of information, um, you know, hundreds of hours every week uh, that are consumed, um, or I should say more than nearly a hundred hours every week. And so, you know, like cultural discernment gives you this 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 basis on which you learn to trust scripture, the wisdom of the church, uh, understanding that there are different religious tr- traditions. As you say, it's not just enough to believe that there is a God and that there's a Jesus, that there's, you know, that there there is a way of understanding his work in the world. Um, and that was the second major practice of these, these resilient disciples was really grounding their lives on the truth that's revealed in scripture. And the third is forging meaningful intergenerational relationships. Tell us about that. Well, the best way we've come to define that is that young people, we interviewed these young people who are growing in faith and, and you know, it's like, like they're very countercultural because they're actually sticking with faith. They want to be Christian is that they actually like hanging out with other church people. Um, they're not cynical. They're not, they're not, you know, it's, there are sometimes generational gaps and other things that come up, but they actually want to be around those people, and they want to emulate them, those li- the lives of those people. So that would be a, a way of thinking about it is, you know, when you talk to young people in your, in your family, in your church, in your context, you know, who are, who are their heroes? How are they talking about uh, the kinds of lives that they aspire to have? And that was – it's not just that they love other Christians. It's actually they like hanging out with those other Christians. They actually enjoy it. They actually want to be – they're they're inspired by older Christians' generosity and sacrifice and you know missions mindedness. All those things really matter, and um, so that's where the intergenerational piece fits in. There's a, there's a real sense of even despite the generation gap, they actually like being around each other and want to want to become like each other. And we have to be intentional about that. Like we have to invite that. We have to invite them into the things that we are doing. And one of the really primary or maybe easy places to do that is in this next step, which is this vocational discipleship. I think this is really interesting. Yeah, I think people have said already that it's the one area that's the most unexpected, you know, relationships, discernment, Jesus, those are more expected areas. But we find just a lot of evidence, and we have been doing so for now for a number of years across a variety of studies that um, how we think about work and the place that will occupy the majority of our creative, industrious hours on this earth is a big part of Christian calling. And for these young resilient disciples, that's a that's a major theme. Um, they, they weren't just prepared for Sunday faithfulness; they were prepared for Monday through Friday faithfulness as well. Which, gosh, I hope that's speaking to what we're talking about, um, you know, <clears throat> in our churches as well. Um, okay, let's talk about this fifth practice, which is countercultural mission. Um, wh- when we talk about young people, I think the idea that they would be excited about and embracing countercultural mission to love and serve others does not surprise us. I think we don't necessarily feel competent 
to disciple them in that. Is this one of those things that goes the other direction where our generations, the older generations are actually going to be discipled by younger generations when it comes to countercultural mission? It's it's certainly true that that's the case, yeah, and and but it, it goes both ways. I mean, listen, one of the big themes of I, the idea of exile, and I think as Christians we've lost the appreciation for how most of the Bible was written to and for exiles or people who were like exiles, and and that's a big and important point I want to make, you know, for listeners today, which is that. You know, we have a lot to learn from exiles. The scriptures teach us that when you're in exile, life is really uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, in Jeremiah 29, I have plans, you know, to prosper you and not to harm you. Um, I think it's Jeremiah 28 and Jeremiah 29, the, you know, the prayer for exiles, um, you know, that we, that, we're, that we pursue the peace and prosperity of the city where God has sent us into exile, even in First Peter there are references to the idea of God's exile scattered in our current Babylon. So there's a very scriptural, you know, message of us recognizing what it means to be in exile. And and this is weird, but to come to appreciate that. And this this is to your to your question. When you're in exile, you realize you have a lot to learn from people you wouldn't have expected to learn things from, which means we have things to learn from our, our society, from our non-Christian neighbors. But we also especially have a lot to learn from the young people. And this this project, I mean, I've just learned so much. I've been inspired to see the gospel working in the lives of these young, resilient disciples. Um, you know, it's easy to give up, kind of have a bit of hopelessness about, you know, where this generation is taking the church um, because of all the secularism and the young people walking away from the church. But this, this project actually re-inspired me. Uh, about you know the the energy and connectedness and vitality that this that this generation wants to exhibit, and that's that you know like there's a story of Mordecai and Esther. Um, you know Mordecai is also in exile, but he is encouraging Esther in her faith walk, in her calling for such a time as this. He's been placed in this position, and that's that's exactly your point. Countercultural mission. Um, is something that's pursued uh, by these exiles, and we get a chance to watch, learn, support, pray, uh, come alongside them, and that's a huge responsibility and a privilege to do. David, this might be um, your most inspiring book and the one that, like, sets a hope before us. So you and Mark Matlock have done uh, a good work here. The book is Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. You can find out everything you need to know at faithforexiles.com. David Kenneman, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Carmen. Always a pleasure. Likewise. All right, friends, we'll be right back. So I actually have three copies of Faith for Exiles to give away. So if you not only enjoyed that conversation with David Kenneman, but you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I and my church could make really good use of understanding five ways for a new generation to follow Jesus in digital Babylon. You can text me to enter a drawing for the three copies we have at 877-933-2484. You can email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. Again, we've got three copies of Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. You can, uh, you can enter to win one of those three copies. Um, 
by texting me, 877-933-2484. You know, if you've never written down that phone number, it's a phone number in addition to being a number you can text. So you can text it during the show. If you text me uh, at that number in non-show hours, other people at Faith Radio read it, and then they do get it to me the following morning. But if you text me during the show, I read it uh, first, and that's 877-933-2484. You can call that number anytime. That's actually the number for Faith Radio. You can you can donate. Uh, you can give us a prayer request. You can share your story of how Faith Radio has impacted your life. That's a good number to have, like, on your speed dial, 877-933-2484. Um, or you can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. And again, we are taking entries for three copies that we have of the book that I just discussed with David Kenneman from the Barna Group. The book is Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon. All right, so um, so many uh, headlines to be lifting up and praying over in this day. I want to really thank you for the kind of engagement that you as listeners um, are I don't know. That's I, I don't have a, a way to complete that sentence. I want to thank you for your engagement. I want to thank you for the things that you communicate via uh, our text line. I want to thank you for the way that you engage on email. Um, I love your questions. If you have engaged with me there, you know I answer you. Um, so let's keep it clean. Let's keep it um, honest. Let's try not to be uh, saying things about other people that are negative. Let's be people who are bearing light into the world that God so loves. Let's focus on being ambassadors. All right. Uh, so we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.